Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thank you for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. The pandemic has taken center stage, but a major mystery has erupted out of the COVID-19 shadows with questions over the health of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. On reports, he may have had heart surgery and on his absence from key events. Some are questioning whether Kim is even alive. Joining The Crisis Next Door to help sort out this mystery and what it means going forward if Kim is indeed unable to continue ruling is Dr. Jung Pak, Senior Fellow and SK Korea Foundation Chair in Korea Studies at Brookings Institution. Dr. Pak also worked for the CIA, and she's the author of a new book called Becoming Kim Jong-un, recently published by Ballantine. Dr. Pak, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Well, first off, good timing with your new book, Becoming Kim Jong-un. It's almost as if you knew what would be happening. So what do you think? Is Kim Jong-un still alive? You know, um, so no one will know exactly um, where, you know, where he is or how he's doing or his exact health status. Um, but, you know, there have been various reports that he's gravely ill to he's recovering or he's at his beachfront villa or he's somewhere else. I mean, so so there's a lot of speculation about his exact status and his and his health. Um, and that raises a lot of questions that affect our national security as well as regional stability in East Asia. Now, one of the events that Kim missed was the annual ceremony marking the birth of his grandfather, Kim Il-sung. How big of a deal is that? Yeah, so April 15th, um, his absence was very much noticed, especially because Kim Jong-un is everywhere and he seems to be omnipresent. Um, but April 15th is like in North Korea, it's like Christmas and Fourth of July and New Year's Eve and all the birthdays all combine into one. Um, and so for him to miss something, miss something uh, like that, um, especially given the fact that his legitimacy rests on the legacy of his grandfather, that raised some eyebrows and now that, that raised a little bit of a flag for me. Um, but that event and that absence in and of itself, it wasn't necessarily or isn't necessarily anything to be worried about, um, given the fact that the, the, that Kim has been trying to kind of step out of his grandfather's and his father's shadows uh, in a couple of, over the past couple of years. Um, but it's the other things. It's the, the volume of uh, conflicting reporting and his absence that, um, that, is, that keeps the speculation swirling. Um, and it seems to me that something is, a, is amiss. We just don't know what that is. 
Um, and, and again, so I think this, uh, this raises a lot of questions about um, what's going on in North Korea, about internal stability, um, and what we should do about it. When Kim took control in 2011, after the death of his father, he initially seemed to present a different image than his father and grandfather, a bit more worldly, willing to smile for the cameras. But in the end, is he any different from his predecessors in his rule of North Korea? Right. Um, so Kim Jong-un, when he came to power after his father died in 2011, um, he seemed to draw more from his grandfather's legacy. Um, his grandfather was a revolutionary or was a guerrilla fighter, fought against the Japanese. Um, the, you know, he uh, initiated the Korean War in 1950, um, and, he, and he built a country from scratch out with Soviet help, obviously. Um, and, and, and his grandfather was much more gregarious, what was, uh, was uh, tall, um, uh, very charismatic. Um, the second Kim, Kim Jong-il, wasn't very charismatic. He was much shorter. Um, he was uh, more introverted. Um, and Kim Jong-un, uh, Kim 3.0, as I like to say, has been much more like his grandfather. He's, he's much more active. He speaks in public, which his father never did. He's hugging children. He's pulling weeds. He's at the water park, waving to waving to people. Um, you know, and he's photographed with women aviators. So this is this is somebody that who who wants to be very out in the open, wants to be that charismatic leader, um, and is and has adopted the mantle of his grandfather. If Kim can no longer rule, or his days of ruling are growing short, succession becomes the key issue. Now, a lot of speculation has centered on Kim Jong-un's younger sister, Kim Yo-jong. How do you view potential succession and who's most likely to come out on top? You know, one of the things that we don't want to do is underestimate North Korea, and that goes for the leaders as well. And many, uh, you know, some analysts have suggested that because North Korea is such a patriarchal society, that a woman leader would never hold muster. Um, but I would argue that she would be near the top of my list uh, in terms of a possible successor, or at least somebody to keep the country together. Um, she has been, uh, she's ha she has a pure bloodline. Um, the North Koreans are very uh, particular about bloodlines um, and the purity of, of this one. And this is something that regime propaganda has pushed for decades. She has the bloodline. She has the proximity to her brother, which her, her brother has cultivated. He's given her, uh, uh, over the years, a bigger profile, diversifying her portfolio. She's, she has leadership positions. Um, and of course, she was seen at the, uh, the Winter Olympics in South Korea back in early 2018. She was in Singapore with President Trump and her brother, and she was in Hanoi again for that second summit. Um, and so, uh, so her profile has been building, and I think this was a calculated move by Kim Jong-un to do so. Um, she's obviously a trusted confidant. She's been acting as his de facto chief of staff. Um, and so, I, you know, she would be at the, near the top of my list. And if anything happened, um, I could see her at least, um, you know, the, the regime or whoever takes over, if it's a collective leadership or otherwise, that they would need a, a Kim family uh, at the head. What do we know about Kim Yo-jong's personality? What is she like as a person? Well, we don't know um, what she's like as a person, uh, but the way the, in, at least uh, the regime portrays her, at least in its media, as uh, a, a, um, a very efficient, productive person, right? She's not 
uh, decked out in bling. She's not, you know, wearing lots of colors. You know, she's not a very flashy person. Um, and that, uh, and, and she's always, you know, lurking in the shadows or hovering over her brother to make sure that everything's going well. So, so the image of is, uh, is that of a productive, efficient, reliable, dependable person. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, I think that's something that, um, that that's something that's what the regime wants to say about her or, or tell about her. Um, it was said that um, it's reported that Kim Jong Il, her father, the, the, and uh, and Kim Jong Un's father, um, had once said back in 2001, told the uh, Russian ambassador to North Korea that his daughter uh, Kim Yo Jong was the savviest and the smartest one of the bunch. Um, and so, you know, in the past six years, where she's actually had known um, leadership positions in the regime, she's she's almost certainly developed and honed those uh, politically savvy, political uh, and savvy skills. Even though North Korea has been a patriarchal society for decades, is there a chance for a military coup? There's always a chance for a military coup, but I think that um, the chances are low. Um, that's... Uh, you know, the, the reason I think it's a low likelihood of a military coup is that um, for decades, the regime, the Kim family has had overlapping security apparatuses. And that's not just at the top, it goes throughout society where, where even at the neighborhood um, or the, uh, at the grassroots level, um, it's, it, it would be uh, blasphemous to talk ill of anybody, of the, of the Kim family. Um, and so it's this culture of fear and repression it, that makes everybody an informant, prevents these the the kind of horizontal connections that would be required for any kind of uh, protest or a military coup to occur. Um, and so you are not going to be facing an Arab Spring. Um, these uh, you know people are not connected in that way, and also they're not uh, they're too fearful about what might happen next. Um, and given some of the ambiguity, uh, well, the high level of ambiguity about who's where and who's doing what, um, it would be it would be pretty treacherous um, and very dangerous and risky for anybody to stick their head up and 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 try to start something. We've seen two successions in the Kim family. Uh, would this potential succession be de more destabilizing than those prior succession uh, successions for the Korean Peninsula? Yeah, uh, you know, Kim, Kim, Kim Jong-un came to, uh, there was a, a rapid succession process um, when Kim, before Kim Jong-un came to power, um, it, which was really spurred on by the father's stroke in 2008. Um, and that's when Kim Jong-il, um, uh, the, the second Kim leader, he you know, jump-started and really amplified the, the succession process given the fact that he was, uh, you know, he had the stroke in 2008. Um, but this would be much more, um, much more compressed, much more sudden, given the fact that you know, Kim, uh, Kim has only been in power for eight years. Uh, Kim Jong-un has been in power for eight years. He's still very young. His children are very young. Um, and the sister is very young. Uh, but you know, as I've said before, you know, you know, it would be uh, it would be a mistake to underestimate uh, this family. You're listening to the Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the mystery surrounding Kim Jong Un with Dr. Jung Pak, senior fellow and SK Korea Foundation chair in Korea Studies at Brookings Institution, and also the author of a new book called Becoming Kim Jong Un. Uh, Dr. Pak, you wrote in Politico that President Trump's approach has become fragile regarding North Korea 
because of his desire to negotiate mano a mano with Kim rather than relying on the diplomatic corps. Just how damaging is that strategy if Kim is no longer in charge? You know, um, President Trump, um, you know, tried something new, and I think that was worthwhile to do, um, and that is to uh, establish a leader-to-leader ties, establish a rapport that has never been done before, um, and and to try to move things forward. Um, But the problem was really in the implementation. Um, President Trump admitted that he did not need to prepare for his meetings with Kim. Um, He was more certain about his his uh, his ability and his charisma to try to extract these concessions from Kim, even though uh, the the intelligence or the information and the analysis about Kim would say different. Um, so, but it, but you know, it was worth trying to see what um, what what uh, Kim would bite on. Um, the the issue, though, is that um, that that uh, pre- the President Trump has, uh, given the fact that all this this leader to leader ties were were established that gave very little space or incentive for Kim Jong-un to actually move forward with working level conversations. So from my perspective, the, the working level discussions uh, were cut off at the knees uh, before, even they, before even they started. Um, another issue is that um, the president, um, to preserve this good relationship, has looked the other way on uh, ballistic missile tests that are dangerous for our allies in the region. Um, he has dismissed them as very standard. He has said that you know every every country does these missile tests, even though these the missile tests that the North Koreans were doing were, were uh, in contravention of UN Security Council sanctions. Um, so he's looked turned a blind eye to the missile tests, the weapons tests, the artillery drills. He's turned a blind eye to uh, North Korea's human rights violations, um, and he's turned a blind eye to uh, to building and maintaining our relationships with our allies in the region, specifically South Korea and Japan, and their uh, and their cooperation and, and and close coordination with them is required for any kind of uh, so any kind of uh, is required for success in having any approach to North Korea. You also wrote about Trump's gutting of the national security bureaucracy. Uh, is the U.S. lacking intelligence on North Korea, and how does that affect decision making? The uh, you know we don't uh, we wouldn't necessarily have insight into the closest um, you know a leader's health, and that's not just true of North Korea, which has really um, robust counterintelligence practices, um, but it's also true of other you know world leaders in general. Um, so, re- but regardless of that, um, you know, the intel community is a is a, a group of civil servants, a sprawling seventeen entity or organization. Uh, the intelligence community is, um, and that requires a you know a strategic vision, good management, and solid management. Um, and uh, and and uh, and uh, you know these are the people at the front lines of any collection of information, analysis, uh, diplomatic. Um, maneuvers, as well as planning for for military or humanitarian aid, um, and so you know it's not a secret that um, the that you know, the president has not looked very kindly on on the intelligence community. Um, but you know, so I think that you know really has a, a deleterious effect on how uh, how prepared we can be for a post Kim scenario or even now. Trump isn't exactly chummy with China right now, having waged a costly trade war and now dealing with a pandemic. How delicate of a situation is North Korean succession for U.S.-Chinese relations? 
The, uh, the Chinese government uh, typically does not like to discuss or does not want to discuss contingency plans or North Korean collapse scenarios or anything to that extent. Um, and so, they're, so the Chinese government is even less likely to be participating in those kinds of conversations now, given all of the problems in the relationship um, that you've articulated. Um, and, and so, um, and the Chinese government has also loosened some of the implementations of the sanctions that, uh, that the international community and the U.S. has, has taken so much effort to build. Um, and so China's cooperation is absolutely critical. North Korea, you know, China is uh, North Korea's biggest um, political and economic partner. Um, North, Korea, North Korea relies on China for over 90% 90, 90 of its uh, total trade. Um, and so China obviously and clearly has a, uh, has a lot of, uh, needs to have a lot of input in this and, and, and its cooperation is absolutely critical to any approach to North Korea. There have long been worries about uh, North Korean government collapse creating a, just a flood of refugees into China. How concerned should Beijing be about that potential scenario? Beijing is absolutely worried about something like that, um, and and its priority on on the Korean Peninsula is not it, it, it is stability first, um, because they don't want the de destabilizing effects of uh, massive refugee flows or a North Korean collapse. Um, and that's one of the problems of our relationship with with Beijing, and and why the North Korea issue has persisted to this day, is that our that the U.S. policy of denuclearization. Uh, quite sooner rather than later, is at odds with China's prioritization of stability. Um, and so China, the Chinese government will be more willing to try to keep propping up the North Korean government versus uh, trying to get denuclearization. So I think that so that's a tension that's existed um, since it, in the past 10, 15, 20 years, um, and it's likely to persist in the, in the coming years. Given a potential succession, does that raise fears that North Korea's potential nuclear and biological and chemical weapons stockpiles could be sold to non-state actors? Yeah, that's always a that's always a you know in the worst case scenario in which um, there's internal collapse or there are factions fighting with each other. Um, that that in that event that there is a greater incentive for some for loose nukes or that um, these groups will try to seize the nuclear weapons either to establish their legitimacy by holding the crown jewels of the regime um, or to uh, sell them um, sell the weapons to non-state actors or, or bad actors um, to try to generate revenue for the regime. So this so that is a low likely, you know, uh, uh, low probability, high impact scenario that would be devastating uh, for not just regional stability, but for global security. Tough to get any news out of North Korea. But Dr. Pak, do we have any idea how the COVID-19 outbreak is affecting life in North Korea? The, uh, the North Korean regime's uh, uh, statements, public statements on COVID is that they have zero infections. Um, they have taken uh, early on since January, they've locked down the borders, they've locked down um, the, the um, trade, um, they have quarantined um, at least 10,000 people by their accounts. Um, and, uh, and, and so, so everything has been in lockdown. There's been a lot of, uh, they've used the propaganda machinery to uh, instruct people on um, hygienic practices. Um, the regime has been showing um, officials and um, cleaning crews disinfecting in a very public way. 
shut down the public facilities, uh, the water parks, the amusement parks, they've shut down uh, tourism. So they've, so they've basically been locked down since uh, late January. So that's been, uh, as we've seen in other places uh, of the world, that's been pretty effective in stemming, um, stemming a, an exponential rise in infections. Um, but given the extensive border, it's a 900-mile border with China. And as you know, China has, one of, has had the biggest outbreaks um, of COVID, um, that it would be nearly impossible for North Korea to have zero um, zero cases. Um, and so we'll see reports trickling out from contacts in North Korea um, where, uh, you know, 100 North Korean soldiers at such and such border with China uh, died as a result of uh, symptoms that look like coronavirus or 200 soldiers there or North Korean defectors talking to their family members inside and they would say, oh, it's really bad in X, Y, and Z province. Um, so you so you see you'll see some of those um, things coming out, but you know with North Korea because of its dilapidated medical infrastructure um, and uh, probably the the lack of testing, um, it's possible that you know these people are dying with coronavirus, but we just don't know because there hasn't been testing. You know, um, people dying in their homes or dying in the fields um, that are written off as the flu or malaria or something else that's not corona. So. Um, so it's really hard to say, but it would be a near impossibility for North Korea to not have any not have any uh, cases of corona. So many unknowns in North Korea, including the health status of Kim Jong Un. Dr. Pak, thank you for joining the Crisis Next Door. Thank you so much, Jason. Really appreciate the opportunity. We've been joined by Dr. Jung Pak, Senior Fellow and SK Korea Foundation Chair in Korea Studies at Brookings Institution. Dr. Pak also worked for the CIA, and she's the author of a new book called Becoming Kim Jong-un, recently published by Ballantine. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.